so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Felicia Wu Song, who's a cultural sociologist and author of a recent book entitled Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. And today we talk about the nature of technology and how it's forming and shaping us and what to do about it. Dr. Song earned her PhD from the University of Virginia and currently serves as a professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Her publications include Virtual Communities, Bowling Alone, and Online Together, as well as a number of scholarly articles. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Song, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. As we get started, I wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to study and focus on the sociological aspects of media and digital technology. Yeah, so this is an area that I've been interested for a long time, and it actually started right after college. I I was a bit of a late bloomer in college, kind of the the light bulbs didn't go off in my brain until junior or senior year, and I realized I could actually engage my academics with my faith. That was a new idea for me. I was not familiar with that. And so by the time I came out of college, I was just firing. I was like, I was just thinking about lots of different things. I was teaching history at a private school, and I know I'm going to date myself right now, but it was the first year that they introduced email to all the students. And what was very interesting to me was the fact that even though we were this small community that focused a lot on community and relationships, we did not have a communal conversation about email and how that was going to impact our life together. And so that got me thinking about how this lack of conversation was actually quite common in American society and how it struck me as just being somewhat odd um, that we would uh, be bringing in new technologies into our lives in such fundamental ways, um, but not have any sorts of conversations, right, about what it might mean. And so around that time, I also came across Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, 
And uh, that was mind blowing to me to realize, oh, there's actually this thing called media studies, right? There's a whole area. Um, and so that kind of set me on my course uh, when I decided, well, I'm going to start studying communication studies, media studies, you know, discovered there were uh, science technology studies, right? But then ended up in sociology, um, which was actually a great place for me um, because in the end of the day, what I was really interested in was the technology, but at the heart of it, I was really interested in how we live into such things as relationships or community or identity, our conceptions of them, you know, how we imagine them, how we experience them. And so sociology was actually what gave me the tools to think historically and uh, with context and institutions uh, about these areas and then be able to apply technology to it. Yeah, I remember. So I went to the University of Tennessee, go Vols. Uh, I always have to say that on the podcast, but I went to the University of Tennessee and studied communication studies before I knew what the Lord was calling me into, which is more kind of ethics and theology and philosophy. And I remember even back then, we weren't talking a lot about technology. I think it was often, and this is true in many ways still today, is that we assume and assimilate technology, but we rarely sit down to question it and kind of slow down and ask, what's really going on here? What's it doing to us? But even more importantly, I think, what is technology? And I think in the last few years, we've seen kind of a shift in the public conversation, even of the last year or so, where people are starting to say, oh, hold up, what's actually going on here? What is this technology? How's it forming and shaping us? So I want to pose that to you in some senses. Like when we talk about technology, and you do this early on in the book, what is the nature of technology? Is it really just a, simply a tool like we've assumed for many generations, even in the church, it's just simply a tool? And then the real question is, how do we use it? Or is it something much more powerful and kind of larger than that, that's forming and shaping us? So it kind of wanted to pose that to you and say, what is technology and what's it doing to us? Yeah. So I think of technology as a part of society. Um, and that that is actually an, is an essential starting point because we often do think, as you mentioned, of technology as something that is context-less, right? That it kind of drops out of the sky and it's beneficial, like it makes life easier. Um, it helps us get things done, uh, which is fantastic. But I think what it misses out on when we think of technology as merely a tool, or some people say that it's neutral, is that we neglect two aspects of essential aspects of technology. We neglect the fact that technologies are produced by human beings who are embedded in a particular society. Um, these human beings have particular visions of what it means to be human, what the good life is that will intentionally or unintentionally get designed into the technology, all the different decisions, right? About what's elegant, what's actually productive, right? What's beneficial about that product. So that's the production side. On the consumption side, right? Or the user side, we, as all of us as users, are also embedded in uh, society, right? So whatever the technology is, it becomes meaningful to us within a context, right? Again, within a context of society that is shot through with values, shot through with visions and understandings of what it means to be human and what the good life is. And so I just think with every technology, there is embedded in it, right? Um, some vision of what is good, 
And if not, right, uh, so one, you know, I love having these conversations with my students because then we say, well, let's, let's talk about a zipper or a paperclip, you know, like what kind of values are in, in those kinds of technologies? Um, those aren't as obvious, but technologies can also create um, what I talk about as affordances, right? They create new opportunities that didn't exist before that we may not be forced to take, but we now have to make a decision if we're going to use that technology or not, or enter into that opportunity or not. And so I think understanding the ways that technologies actually are embedded in society, embedded in our institutional life, I actually think is much more helpful when we're trying to answer the question of what is it doing to us, right? It just starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah, and I think that's really important. We've talked a lot about that here on the podcast. I know one of the folks who endorsed your book, uh, Derek Sherman, who's a good friend of mine at Calvin University, talks about it in light of a value-laden activity. So when he's talking about technology, and I really like that, that's hailing from kind of a lot of the tradition and the great work that's been done at Calvin over the years, over the decades, um, on the nature of technology, how it's forming and shaping us. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about technology, you said, is there are a lot of older thinkers outside of our current generation that can help us better think in many ways about what we're currently dealing with and uh, working through. So from a sociological perspective, so I come to this conversation more from a theological and primarily an ethical position, talking about how uh, technology expands, what I always say is it expands our moral horizons um, of what we think is possible and what were kind of the opportunities before us. But from a sociological perspective, how are these technologies not only shaping and forming us, but in many ways being designed to kind of exploit us in some sense or to alter our behavior? From How do, how do you see that? Mm. Yeah, so I think especially when it comes to thinking about our current digital landscape, we can't get around the fact that there are corporations, right, that are creating the devices, that are building the platforms that we're on, and that um, they have certain goals, right? They have certain ends that are economic in nature that would be interested in making their devices essential to our lives, right? Where we, we couldn't live without them and also incredibly appealing and attractive, right? So that we kind of can't stop using them, right? And I think um, from a sociological perspective, um, what's interesting is that what these corporations essentially want to do is they want to, there's a term that we use in sociology, they want to institutionalize their devices and the practices around them. And what I mean by that is normalize, right? Like, normalize it through just what we expect of each other when we are friends with each other or family members. Oh, of course we would use FaceTime to talk to each other when we're not, you know, together uh, in the norms, but also in the very practices of how we do business or how we do church or how we do family, right? That it would become something so embedded, right? So that when you send your kids to public school, of course, they're going to get a Google account, right? Because that's how we teach, right? Um, and so it's, it's that embedding both in the norms and in the actual institutional practices, which is sort of their ultimate goal, right? Because that would reap the most benefits for them. And I think when we think about the ways that our digital devices and practices have in fact become institutionalized in the last 20, 30 years, right? 
um, and continue to be, it's it's actually quite fascinating when you kind of start taking stock, right? Of like, wow, like I couldn't go to work or or go to school without having to use this, right? Like I I, I can't be a student or an employee without doing this, um, and and from the corporation side, you know, that's a win. From a sociological perspective, it says we ask the question, well, what is happening then to that institution, right? How is that shifting education? How is shifting church life? How is it shifting work organizational life when that does become institutionalized, when we all have Google calendars, right? And we're all scheduling through that. Yeah, it reminds me of two different situations. One, I remember years ago looking through the archives here at the RLC and seeing old photos of like the staff together. And we were talking amongst our staff and said, you know, it's kind of interesting because we take our work home with us, whether it's on a laptop, now it's on our phones, uh, we're using like work communication tools, Gmail, etc. We almost don't unplug. And it, I was reminded of that the other day because I was on my Google calendar scheduling something really late at night and Google came up and had this little bar and said, Jason Thacker's working outside of organizational hours. (laughs) And I was laughing. I was like, well, (laughs) you've kind of encouraged this in some sense. Like it's, it's, I don't know. I thought it was a little ironic and maybe there's some good intentions on why they wanted to do that. But it also reminded me of years ago, there was Google Glasses was introduced and it was these glasses with cameras and kind of speakers embedded in them and there was a revolt. I mean, the culture was not having it. There was a lot of privacy questions. There still are a lot of privacy questions surrounding them, Um, but there was kind of a revolt. But then it was interesting, as you said, kind of this institutionalizing and embedding is even now you have companies like Meta who have glasses out, Ray-Ban stories, and they're using these devices where they look just like the glasses I'm wearing. Listeners can't see that. Uh, but they have little cameras instead of these little dots. And they're they're asking questions about, in some sense, like how, not that we want to normalize this in some sense, but they do because they want it to be socially acceptable and how, what kind of norms and practices do we need to put in place? And it just reminds me, every time we come to one of these conversations, I like to drive it back and say, okay, what's actually going on behind the scenes? So we've talked a little bit about the nature of technology. But one of the things that I was really fascinated at what you do in the book is in part two, you kind of open up talking about the nature of what it means to be human, which I think is from an ethical perspective is one of the most important questions we can ask today, because that's really the question behind all of the big questions we're facing as a society is what does it mean to be human? And you frame this in light of kind of the more proper academic term of theological anthropology. So I just wanted to kind of dig in there a little bit and say, how do you define the image of God? And specifically, how does that kind of align with a lot of the ways we design and the ways that we use a lot of the digital technologies today? Hmm. Okay. Uh, So there's a lot there. So in terms of what I think of with regards to our humanness, right, and being made in the image of God, um, two things come to mind. Um, I talk about, in the book, I talk about understanding God as the Trinity, right, the triune God, and how it's essential to recognize the core relationality that is built into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Trinity, right, and that being made in the image of God is actually to enter into that relationality, right? That that we are created to be in relationship with God. We are created to be in relationship with each other. 
and that in our distinctions from each other, right, we actually become uh, more fully ourselves, right, um, rather than kind of homogenizing, everyone's kind of all the same. And so understanding the significance of relationality helps me understand the kinds of appetites we have for connection, um, for affirmation, for a sense of belonging, right? Understanding, oh, okay, this is, this is part of that relationality um, aspect of how I reflect uh, the nature of God. Uh, the other part of our humanity is our embodiment, um, and I think this one's really interesting when it comes to digital technologies, at least at this point, um, right? So much of our digital technologies have been about getting out of our bodies or being freed from them, uh, so to speak. Um, and I think this is a really interesting hope um, for Christians to have to grapple with. Um, certainly within the, you know, Christian history, you know, there's, there's Gnosticism, right? We could go down that road of, of certain beliefs about, of what is significant in our humanity. But I think, um, for me, what's most compelling is considering the significance of Jesus Christ's incarnation, right? Um, the relevance of his humanity as one that was certainly about understanding the human condition, right, in, in kind of deeply uh, f- philosophical ways, but also just living in his skin, you know, like dealing with all the limitations, right, that come with a body that gets tired, that gets hungry, that can only be in one place, and yet can also feel all the emotions and compassion and concerns that he inevitably encountered in his particular context. And so when it comes to our digital practices, I think there is such a powerful pull in us to spend a lot of time of our consciousness outside of our bodies, so to speak, right? Um, Like our bodies are irrelevant or you might flip it around and say the context we are in, right? The people who are around us, the place we're actually inhabiting, the, the, the physical um, surroundings are irrelevant, right? They become, if not irrelevant, then often secondary, right? Secondary to what's happening in the online space, in the notifications that are coming through our devices, And so I think these two areas, the relationality and the embodiment parts of us, I think are are both helpful in understanding why we do what we do when we're online, why we're so drawn to it, um, because these devices and these platforms are are very much built to to tap into that that longing, that appetite, um, but also challenges us to consider what we might be missing out on when we continually live lives that make our embodied experiences either irrelevant or secondary. Yeah, and I think that's one of the areas that I appreciate about your book is kind of that discussion of presence, uh, because it's really interesting, especially with a lot of the conversations surrounding like the metaverse and virtual reality and this this disconnecting. So I was in a meeting last week in virtual reality for the first time, And I was using it and kind of interacting with folks. And it was really kind of eerie in some sense because I was, you know, mentally I was in a different world. 
Um, but physically, my wife later was telling me, she's like, you were staring right at me the whole time. But I had no idea uh, where I was because it was kind of disorienting. And I, it's on a total aside, we could talk about virtual reality for a long time. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is uh, when she was like, you were kind of staring at me. I didn't know where I was. And other people on the call were saying like, I'm getting a little motion sick. Like, I think I'm going to have to end early or I think I'm going to have to step out of this. And it's to me, it's almost comical because we talk about like, oh, the the metaverse is going to revolutionize the church. And it very well may. But we're pretty far away from that right now, I think. In some sense, not only the technology and the limitations, but even just the physical effects. And I think that kind of speaks to this uh, mind-body kind of dualism that we're talking about is that we are embodied souls. That's how I like to talk to my students about it, is we're embodied souls, or you can say ensouled bodies, no matter kind of where you want to put the emphasis. Um, but I think that's a really important question, something that we need to dig in a little bit. But one of the ways I, I love about what you're doing here is you're talking about the nature of personhood, kind of presence, embodiment, and you connect that with this idea of a liturgy. Um, so some listeners may be familiar with that language. Some may not of like James K. Smith and his cultural liturgies. You see this in Charles Taylor's uh, social imaginary. I know you referenced Taylor throughout a little bit. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the term like secular liturgy or a counter liturgy, what do you mean when you use those terms and how does this connect to this larger conversation? Yeah. So when Smith talks about secular liturgy, he, well, let's maybe we'll start with liturgy. The idea is this. We are, the assertion is that as human beings, we engage in routine habits that shape us, embodied habits. And um, I like to think of this as how often we think we believe certain things and then we live into those beliefs and then they they become a part of our embodied life, Right. What Smith is suggesting is, is it's, it's the opposite direction. We actually train ourselves bodily into certain beliefs or loves, right? And so I like to use like the athlete or the musician as examples of folks that really understand what it means to start from the outside, right? You're just doing the repetition scales or the, the exercises and you train your body in such a way that you start to be able to see or hear or right, you, you develop like a new sensory experience, right? Because you have trained your body um, from the outside in. And so Smith's argument is that when we are unreflective about our habits and our routines, we are trained in directions that are influenced by our society and culture and very often trained away from the kingdom of God, right? Loves that are away from the kingdom of God. These are secular liturgies. What people of faith need to do is one, recognize like, oh, okay, like I'm actually engaged in these habits that I haven't really thought about, but they are in fact shaping me in some unintended way. We have to become aware of them and then engage in counter liturgies that push back, right? That push back against those secular liturgies that say, hey, as a person of faith, I'm committed, right, to these particular understandings of who God is, who I am. I want to train myself through my daily life with these counter liturgies, right, that lead me in the direction that I, I want to go to. Um, so when it comes to our digital practices, I think most of us have lots of habits that we don't even think about, right? We don't, we didn't intentionally decide, right? Like you were saying, like, I didn't intentionally decide to work on weekends. 
I just do, <laughs> right? Because it's there and I'm, I'm anxious, right? And so there are these secular liturgies that we can start becoming aware of um, in a more self-reflective way and considering what those habits are about and then consider taking on counter liturgies um, that might push back against those tendencies. One of the things I like about Smith is that um, he talks about how liturgy is the work of the people. Right? And so very often we think of our digital habits as individual matters, and in many ways they are. But at the same time, when it comes to change, right, like change that's sustainable, that's actually going to make a difference, I think the idea of liturgy becomes super productive because, you know, I might not want to check my email on weekends or I might not want to be on Instagram, but hey, all my friends are, all my colleagues are, right? That makes it super hard to... <laughs> make a change, right? And so I think there's a really interesting call for groups, for organizations to work together to think about how can we build a life that is helpful for everyone, right? That actually is much more healthy and, and moves us in the right direction or in the direction that we'd like to move in. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially kind of what you were talking about with the communal element, because I think we often, we, we do, we focus on kind of our individual habits. And I can't tell you, and there's so many helpful books on this, you know, let's talk about screen time. Let's talk about apps that limit your behavior or these type of fixes, almost like technological fixes to what um, the Canadian philosopher George Grant will say that we just use more technology to solve the problems that technology itself created. And it's interesting in that because I think that's often where our minds go when we talk about technology, screen times and things. And those are helpful conversations to have. But that's why, especially in the podcast, we try to dig a little bit deeper and kind of say, what else is going on here? Not only kind of the nature of technology, some of these deeper, more philosophical conversations that go on. And this idea of the liturgy and how our beliefs inform our habits, but also how our habits inform our beliefs, I think is this kind of beautiful circular relationship about how they influence one another. And that's I, I love that part of the book because you almost kind of enter into this ongoing debate. Uh, so I teach worldview studies at Boyce College. And when we talk about the nature of worldviews, there's this kind of interfaith debate over the value of worldviews um, in worldview studies where it's been so cognitive and rational. And so you have Smith and Taylor and others coming in saying, no, it's actually about our habits and our practices. And then on the other side of it, say, well, it's actually, there's about our beliefs and what we think and kind of this rational. And so I, I just see this as this beautiful relationship. And we've talked a lot about it on the podcast is that in many ways, this is the relationship between theology as doctrinal beliefs and ethics, which is our practices and our habits and what we do. And that's, I just really enjoyed that part of the book. So just commend you to say, hey, you're really helping kind of push the conversation forward, um, especially in light of how technology is shaping us. To that end, I want to talk, get, I guess, a little bit more practical. So we're not talking about like screen time habits and the best apps and things like that in terms of technology, but you spend a good deal of the book talking about cultivating certain practices, especially practices from the historic kind of Christian tradition uh, that you think are helpful in cultivating in light of how technology is shaping us, that counter liturgy that you were speaking to. So what are some of those practices and kind of how do you recommend, like what maybe is a good takeaway for listeners as they want to move forward, if they thought kind of about the headier side of it, as they're thinking about shaping and kind of reforming that in light of their liturgies and practices, what would you recommend? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think this is where I get actually very excited about the Christian heritage, because I I really do believe there are, there's so many resources historically in the spiritual disciplines um, that, that were all about people trying different kinds of practices that would move them closer to the kinds of lives and and even beliefs that they aspire to, right? Um, so just thinking about what you're saying before about worldview and belief and practice, right? That mix, I think the, the history of, of, shall we say, like spirituality, right? And spiritual disciplines is just so rich with all these models of folks that engage in different practices. I think in the digital context, practices that actually you know, the kinds of counter liturgies that push against the tendencies towards constant productivity, right? Or a constant notion of stimulation, right? Um, Always learning, always doing, right? I think those are the kinds of spiritual disciplines that are the most relevant for us today. It's not to say that, you know, reading the scriptures and doing scriptural study is not important. I just think in this context, it's the solitude, right, that is super challenging for all of us, right? A solitude that that isn't even so much a solitude of, you know, can I get in a room by myself? But it's a, a quietness in one's mind and in, in one's heart and spirit, right? Can can we actually still ourselves enough to sense to hear what's either going on in ourselves or um, going on in what the Holy Spirit is prompting in us, right? So it's that kind of solitude and silence or stillness that I think can manifest in lots of different ways. So one of the examples I talk about in the book is how digital uh, devices encourage us to multitask, right? And it can be very powerful and sort of exhilarating. Um, I talk about how I think of myself as a hypertasker. Like I love feeling like I'm getting a lot of things done all at the same time, right? Um, and filling every single molecule of my body with energy to do lots of things. But in the end of the day, I realize oh, that, that totally obliterates me, <laughs> um, you know, physically, but psychologically, it also just, I become ruthless, quite frankly, right? And so the counter liturgy to that is monotasking, right? Where you actually intentionally decide in this particular activity, I'm just going to do one thing. And so for some of us, that might be um, when I eat my lunch, I'm just going to eat my lunch and actually pay attention to what I'm eating or where I am, right? And I'm not going to be checking my email, reading, listening to a podcast, right? Which are all great things, right? But it's it's creating that time of silence and, and solitude. Driving is a great place to monotask, um, a really powerful one, I think, if you're in the car alone. And I found that time to actually become quite sacred. It's often a decompressing time um, for me that I don't even realize I need, right? When I'm coming back from work or in between um, errands and so forth. So I do think of practices in terms of really needing to, each of us needing to be very, grow in our awareness of what it is that we need. You know, we have different personalities, we have different lives and rhythms and responsibilities, and then trying, right? Trying different things, um, whether it's the monotasking 
or deciding, hey, you know, I'm going to go get an analog alarm clock. (laughs) So I'm not using my phone as my alarm clock. And I'm going to put my phone outside of my bedroom to charge somewhere else in the house. Because when I go to sleep and when I wake up, I just want to protect that rest from all the things that I know are going to come through that device. And that I personally, you know, I can speak from my own experience. I'm just too weak to resist. Um, So I I just got to put it somewhere else. Um, That's not a spiritual discipline, but it's the kind of practice, right, um, that we can start to engage in. Yeah, I think I think that specific example about moving your phone is really interesting because from the documentary The Social Dilemma a couple of years ago that was on Netflix, uh, one of the interviewees, I can't remember his name, but he said, the question isn't do you check Twitter in the morning, it's do you check it before your feet hit the ground or while you're going to the restroom. And I found myself, I do, like I I go to bed and I'm checking all the apps. There's nothing there. And then when I wake up, I check all the apps again, almost by like default. And I stepped back when I was writing my last book, I was thinking about that. Like, why do I do this? Like, what am I expecting to find? In many ways, it's because there's that liturgy that kind of, I've been formed and trained to be constantly checking the device. And when we feel weird, if our phone is in the other room, like, where's my phone? I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm anxious right now. Like, I've got to go find it uh, just to see if anybody. And I think as you said, is one of the best practices that we can cultivate is that silence and solitude. And we can even do that through reading and reading the scriptures. I think for me, that's been one of the most, it's kind of like focusing my mind on one thing rather than doing all of these others or having screen time limits where I can't access certain things outside of certain hours or turning do not disturb on my devices, which seems like a little technical kind of trite little fix. But it does keep me when we're having a conversation for this podcast, I'm not seeing text messages rolling in. Um, so it kind of helps me to focus a little bit on what's at stake. So I, I, I highly recommend your book. I think it's a really helpful book uh, to help us slow down, kind of evaluate and kind of interrogate technology and how it's forming and shaping us. Uh, but to that end, in terms of other resources, so what recommended resources would you put forth for our listeners if they wanted to dig a little bit deeper on the various topics? I mean, we could keep this conversation going for a while, but what are some of the resources that helped you as you were writing this book or resources that you found that you felt would be really helpful for those who want to dig a little bit deeper? Yeah. So, you know, someone I don't reference enough in my book, but was always kind of in the background is the philosopher Albert Borgman. Um, He's just done lots of really good thinking and writing about technology and and kind of creating just like helpful distinctions um, about different kinds of technologies um, that could be um, really helpful for some of your listeners. Was there a particular book of Borgman that you thought was really helpful? Oh, you know, I mean, I think I think his book Power Failure is certainly the most accessible one, and and probably you know unless unless you really want to get into the to the weeds, uh, is is the one to go to, and and you have all the the you know, his basic apparatus is, is in there, um, and helpful. Um, the other person I think of is Tish Harrison Warren's, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I reference a fair bit in the book. Um, that kind of focuses on the liturgy side of things and focuses on just helping someone better understand what it would be like to have liturgy as a lens for thinking about their lives, um, something that I've I've found tremendously helpful. And then similarly, 
I also think of The Common Rule by Justin Early, which is a little even more practical. Um, But I think what I appreciate about his book is, and and this kind of gets to your point about, you know, the do not disturb. Yes, it's a tech kind of thing, uh, solution, quote unquote. But I think the most important piece of this is, is for us to recover certain ideas of what it means to be human, like back to the larger theme of, hey, you know, there are certain times of the day that are sacred, that deserve to be protected. There are certain places, the dinner table, the bedroom, that deserve to be protected, right? They are sacred. Um, They are part of the gifts that God gives us um, to give us the texture of our lives, right? That that is part of our humanity. And so I, I think what Early does so nicely is, is to um, offer some practical tips, but in his own life show, right, that, that there are certain things really worth protecting um, and that we can, we can take, you know, these little steps, micro adjustments to move closer to the life we want to live. Well, and for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to include links to those books. Um, and I, I highly recommend, I'll plus one, um, Borgman's work. It's he has a number of books out, um, many of which he's been really helpful because he was kind of having this conversation before a lot of other Christians were. Like <laughs> just the nature of what he was doing and the work he was doing. So I highly recommend those, and we'll we'll link to all of those in the show notes, including a link to your book, uh, Restless Devices. That's new from IVP. Really helpful book. Highly recommend it for listeners. But Dr. Shang, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really fun conversation. Uh, we could obviously keep going for a long time. But I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Digital Public Square. Thank you. It's been really great. Appreciate the invitation. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Song and learn more about her new book, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hainer and technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.